Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. In our study of this Gospel of Matthew, we now leave the Sermon on the Mount, where we've been for a lot of weeks, verse chapter 5, 6, and 7. Leave that behind us and return to the narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. But as we do, we immediately face the issue of what do we do with the miracles of Jesus. They make great Bible stories when we're children, but then we grow up. And many adults just abandon those stories along with Mother Goose Tales, claiming they are nothing but folklore which has grown up and grown up around the, 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 the life of Christ. But Christians know we cannot just throw out accounts with the scriptures, uh, which the scriptures present as true, and yet they don't fit our modern mentality either. They seem so unsophisticated to us. And so in a way, even we outgrow them. We just slide over them as if they don't really matter, choosing rather to focus on more significant things like how God gives meaning to my life or how Jesus can lift my spirits when I'm depressed or other such things. This morning, though, I call you back to the miracles of Jesus. Here we have something really significant, something which makes our feel-good Christianity look trivial, as it is. For you see, these miracles are not magic acts. Jesus did not go around doing great feats of power to entertain or impress people. Nor was this the motive of Matthew and Mark and Luke who put these things in the gospel accounts. These miracles were performed by Jesus and recorded by the evangelists to teach us, to present clearly the identity and the authority of Jesus the Messiah and to explain the nature of the work that he came to do. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to our text this morning and see what the Spirit is teaching us through this particular miracle account. Matthew chapter 8, the first four verses. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There are three significant things that I think we ought to learn from this uh, account, which gives us three simple points. <clears throat> First of all, Jesus <clears throat> heals the hopeless. Jesus heals the hopeless. In our day, Christianity is too often considered the religion of the affluent middle class. It's the added touch for the lives of people who are well-educated and comfortable and fortunate in most every way, who enjoy freedom from the reality, the reality of the dirty problems that uh, poor people face. And, and unconsciously, we tend to mold Jesus to fit our kind of affluent middle-class image. That's not the picture Matthew gives us. He presents Jesus as one who came to touch 
and cleanse those who are hopelessly defiled, miserably contaminated, outcasts from everything which is clean and decent and acceptable. Jesus heals those who are hopeless. That's the condition represented by leprosy. Leprosy was not considered just another disease. It was total defilement. The leper didn't need to be healed. Whenever the Bible refers to leprosy, that leper needs to be cleansed, not just healed. He was not cared for as a sick man uh, uh, needing sympathy. He was cast out as impure and unclean, a menace to society. In the Old Testament, leprosy was thought to be the plague which God struck, with which God struck down sinners. For example, in Numbers 12, God struck Miriam with leprosy when she set herself against God's prophet Moses. In 2 Chronicles 26, God struck King Uzziah with leprosy when he dared to enter the temple and do what only the priests were allowed to do. You see, leprosy was more than just an incurable disease. It had come to represent the judgment of God, which no one could endure. Now, the Old Testament had much to say about leprosy. In Leviticus 13 and 14, uh, we have outlined what one is to do if you think you have this disease. For frankly, the Hebrew word for leprosy could, could refer to a lot of different things. It could be this terrible disease. It could be a skin rash. So the law tells the priest how to diagnose that the best they could, whether it's leprosy or just a skin rash. It outlines the sacrifices for ceremonial cleansing of the person that the person should offer if the condition goes away or if it amounts to nothing. But if the person is declared to have leprosy, he is simply pronounced unclean. The law provided no way to be made clean. No no treatment, no hope, no cure. The law only condemned the person to be removed from society. Quarantine. To go about saying, unclean, unclean, stay away. This is the awful condition which Jesus confronts in our text. And what was his reaction? He reached out and touched the untouchable. He cleansed the unclean. He removed the defilement from the leper, from the hopelessly defiled. In doing so, Jesus presents himself as the one who does what the law could never do. He cleanses what the law could only diagnose and condemn. Now that's the point that Jesus, uh, this, who Jesus is. That's the point uh, being made in chapter 11 when John the Baptist, who's sitting in jail, wondering why Jesus didn't deliver him, sends word to, to Jesus. Are you the one to come? Or are we looking for someone else? To which Jesus replied, you tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, the promised Messiah who even cleanses lepers has come. You see the greater implication for our salvation here. It's not just about leprosy or skin disease. The law of God points out our sinfulness. It properly diagnoses uh, our condition as hopelessly unclean. Under the judgment of God who strikes down the wicked. But the law 
any law, the best law, the law of God, is unable to do anything about our condition. The law offers no hope. It only condemns. But Jesus presents himself as the one who can do what the law was powerless to do. He came to cleanse our most hopeless defilement, our judgment by God, by burying it in his own body on the cross. Romans 8 says that very explicitly. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Jesus heals the helpless. I don't know what leprous malignancy is eating away at your life. But this morning I declare to you that Jesus came not as the gift for the one who has everything, but as the one who can cleanse the defilement of those who are utterly hopeless. Whatever sinful, unsightly malignancy has eaten and distorted your life from the inside out, Jesus is able to cleanse away as certainly as he cleansed this hopeless leper. Jesus heals the hopeless. Which brings us to a second point. That is that Jesus saves whom he pleases. Jesus saves whom he pleases. You know, we have tremendously good news to declare to the world that Christ Jesus has come to cleanse us, to save us from hopeless defilement. But I fear we regularly distort the message, this message, in our day. While declaring the unparalleled power of Christ to cleanse, we then lock all of his power up in the will of the defiled one. So our modern gospel goes something like this. Christ is able to cleanse you, but the decision's all up to you. Or Jesus stands at the door knocking, but he's unable to enter because only you can open the door. Or he wishes to save you, but he waits until you're ready because you must decide. But it's all right. He's patient. He'll wait. He'll wait. Or Jesus desperately wants to save you, but he won't trample over your will. You hear what's happened? We've suddenly shifted the emphasis from God's will and his plan to save hopeless sinners and given the crucial decision-making power to ourselves. We've made the infinite, omnipotent, sovereign God dependent upon getting permission from us, the sinful ones. That's not what the Bible says. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God says, it does not depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God's mercy. God says, we receive Christ and are born again, not of human decision, but born of God. You see, God holds all the cards. The prerogatives are all his, not ours. Our situation, by definition, is hopeless. We have no decision to make. We could decide a million times that we're going to be made clean. We can't make it happen. Our decision means nothing. It is powerless. But when we hear of Jesus, like the leper, we sense some hope. Yet there's nothing we can do to control him. So like the leper, we get down on our knees before Jesus and we cry out, Lord, if you are willing, 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. Or like the publican, we pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Having given, given up on every other cure, having been disillusioned by every other healer, we put our hope in the one Jesus, believing that if he is willing, he could cleanse us. We can't make him willing. We can't control him. But if he would do that, we believe he can. For Jesus could save whoever he pleases. Have you ever cast yourself on the mercy of Christ in such a way? Have you ever recognized your hopeless condition enough to come to God and admit that unless he, in his mercy, is willing to save you, he must, in his justice, send you to hell? Because that's what you deserve. Or do you still persist in you've got to be in the driver's seat? Do you seek to use Christ to escape judgment, but stop short of ever admitting that you need his mercy? Though you're totally at his mercy. You cannot escape that God is sovereign, not you. Don't play with him. Jesus will save whomever he is pleased to save. Now that sounds hard, but I don't try to paint a dismal picture here. I proclaim good news to you. For when the leper fell before Jesus and cried out to him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What did Jesus do? He said, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. We can't comprehend this interaction between God's sovereign grace and our need to call upon him to be saved. But in John's gospel, Jesus says it in such a way that we must take both of those things seriously. Both God's sovereign will and the need for us to humble ourselves seeking mercy. Jesus says it this way. No one can come to the Father, and no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. God will have mercy on whomever he has mercy. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him. And he who comes to me, I will never drive away. God is sovereign, and he calls us to plead his mercy. With the promise that when we come, he doesn't turn us away. Or as we've seen in the text, the leper says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. To which Jesus replies, I am willing. Be clean. Then before he finishes the third point. Jesus saves us and sends us to obey. Jesus saves us and sends us to obey. When the leper was cured of his disease, he was overjoyed. Imagine his excitement. He was no longer an outcast from society. He no longer had to um, go around crying, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would come near him. He was freed of that. I see there's a new release of the movie Ben-Hur coming out. One of the things I remember from all those years ago is a picture of the lepers. While he was away, Ben-Hur's mother and sister contracted leprosy and were banished to a leper colony. But 
their situation was so terrible that they begged that Ben Hur not be told that they were still alive. They would rather have him believe they were dead than to see them as lepers, total outcasts, the living dead, utterly defiled. That has been the condition of this man that Jesus deals with. And now suddenly he's clean. He's alive again. His joy is overwhelming. He wants to tell everyone, wouldn't you? Their friends and family to see again. Jesus has done a wonderful thing for him. Jesus had saved him. But then he gives him this strange command. Verse 4. See that you don't tell anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus had saved him, but then he sent him to obey this strange command. What could Jesus be thinking? Didn't he want everyone to hear the good news that he could heal a leper? Didn't he want everyone to hear and believe that? Now there's something else going on here. There's something more important than anything that former leper could comprehend. But Jesus called him to obey this strange command for a reason. Let me explain. Leviticus 14 required that one who had been cleansed from a leprous condition go to the priest and make a certain offering to the Lord and be officially declared clean by the priest whom God had appointed. Now Jesus was concerned that his ministry not violate God's word. You see, Jesus wanted a real testimony of his work. Now, he wanted the leper declared clean by the law of God, by the priest who was given that duty, not just by the leper's friends. He wanted the cleansing to be, de- to be declared uh, to the priests who were responsible for such things, not just to the population. Jesus wanted the cleansing rituals which pointed all these years to the Messiah who would bring real cleansing. The thing that had just taken place, Jesus wanted their fulfillment to be made known to those in charge as it happened for the first time in history. He wanted that there not just be one leper, but that the whole law and priesthood should proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah who came to cleanse from helpless defilement. So Jesus saved the leper, but then sent him to obey a strange command. The leper was too excited. He had a zeal for serving God. He had great enthusiasm, but he was not obedient. In Mark's account of this, Mark tells us what happened. Let me read. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Because of this man's refusal to obey, Jesus' work was actually hindered. He set the priests against Christ, for he inadvertently presented Jesus as someone unconcerned about keeping God's law. 
Now, folks, we live in a very different time in regard, especially to the ceremonial law, but this incident has powerful truth for us. Here, the notion so popular in our day that sincerity is all that really mounts a matter. That's what God desires most, that we be sincere. Here, that notion is demolished. This man was sincere. But obedience to God's word is what the Lord requires. Jesus says, if you love me, do what I say. Obey me. I expect, expect that most everyone here claims to have been cleansed by Christ. But is it possible that we have zeal for neither telling everyone like the leper did or obeying God's word like Christ commanded? But when Jesus saves us, he sends us out to be obedient disciples, whether or not his commands make sense to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, we learned that Jesus taught with authority, not like the teachers of the law or even the prophets of old. Now in the accounts of Jesus' miracles, we begin to learn that Jesus also acted with authority. In this case, authority over disease. And in the next thing, authority over the wind and the rain. And the next one, authority over even de- demonic powers. This morning I call you to Jesus. He heals the hopeless cleansing us from sin's defilement. But Jesus is sovereign. He heals whom he pleases. So bow before him, humbly seeking his mercy. He does not turn away those who humbly seek mercy. But when, when, when you have received cleansing, make no mistake, he calls you to a life of obedience. His grace demands such a response. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, show us through this incident that, you've, uh, that took place and that you've made sure was recorded in the gospel. Show us something about the work of Jesus and how powerful it is and how sovereign it is and how, yet how merciful you are, but how also you save us to serve you, not just to be uh, more comfortable. Take your word, Lord, and uh, plant it deep in our hearts like seed that it would grow and bear fruit in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.